Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. Thanks so much for joining me. My guest today is Mark Fullman. He's been studying mass shootings for most of the past decade in an effort to better understand why these shootings happen. His new book is Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. It's about the growing field of behavioral threat assessment, a new approach to stopping mass shooters long before they pick up a gun. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. So I want to start off by talking about what this book isn't about, and that's guns and gun control, simply because any time one of these attacks happens, that's where the public debate goes to. So why wasn't that the focus of this for you? Well, when I started really digging into the problem of mass shootings about a decade ago, I've been covering gun violence for a number of years already. I was well familiar with the common political debates that we have over guns and gun regulations in our country. And I had grown pretty weary of that, as I think many people have in the context of mass shootings, and really had begun to start asking the question, how else can we be thinking about this problem? What more can we do to try to solve the problem of mass shootings? And when I began to learn about the field of behavioral threat assessment, which is the focus of the book, it really opened up a whole different avenue in terms of studying the problem, thinking about preventing these kinds of attacks from happening. The issue of gun regulations is, is of course, intrinsic to the problem of mass shootings. You don't have mass shootings without guns. But I think I also felt that we really needed to contend more with the reality of the problem, that we have so many guns in our country and they're so easy to get in so many places. And, and therefore, this kind of zero-sum debate about getting rid of all guns or arming everybody really doesn't reflect that reality and, and you know, drove me to, to really pursue other ways of thinking about the problem. In the book, you write that there are several misconceptions around mass shootings. Can you tell us more about what you mean? Sure. Well, one of the early findings with the database work was that uh, many mass shooters were suicidal, uh, a majority of them, in fact. And so this goes directly to the uh, big question of mental health in this equation. And yet, what I was also learning in studying cases as I dug deeper was that the role of mental health is also fundamentally misunderstood in terms of how it's portrayed in the news media, in politics, and I think the way that the general public understands it in the context of mass shootings. In essence, we tend to regard mass shooters as crazy, as insane monsters who who just snap, quote unquote, um, as if they attack impulsively, as if they're disconnected from reality. In most cases of mass shootings, mental illness in a clinically diagnosable sense is not present, or even when it is, it's not the primary cause of what's happened. It's not what leads a person to commit a mass shooting. I think the the way that I've come to say this in lay terms is that mass shooters are not crazy. We, we treat them as crazy, but they aren't crazy. These are people who are angry and desperate and in many cases suicidal. So they have serious mental health problems, but there are also many other circumstances and behaviors that are feeding into 
the process of planning and then carrying out a mass shooting. And that's the nature of these attacks. These are planned crimes, and they're often planned over a long period of time. So the notion that mass shooters just snap and fly off the handle and act insane and kill a bunch of people is just wrong. And that was one of the things I took away from the book, that the planning involved in most mass shootings is not going to be something that a person with a psychosis or schizophrenia or a diagnosis like that is going to be able to carry out. That's right. Well, it's that these, the process that leads up to these attacks requires, in in at least a basic sense, the ability to plan and prepare very rationally to carry out, um, you know, what is often a a complex scenario. These are people who are uh, developing a violent idea, thinking about who they're going to target and where. Uh, That may not be specific individuals. It may be a group of people or an institution, a workplace, a school, then gathering the the means to do it, firearms, tactical gear, uh, other items that have come up in in the context of shootings for surveillance, Um, you know, then often going and practicing at a gun range. So these are multiple steps that a person is taking through a thought out process of planning that is not uh, synonymous with somebody who is completely out of their mind, hearing voices, being driven by aliens to attack, you know, these sort of like stereotypical ideas that we have of people who are insane, who would then go commit what we often regard as an incomprehensible act. And I think that's sort of the crux here, the, the kind of limits of, of lay thinking that we have with mental health, because we tend to regard these attacks as, as pure evil or as pure crazy. And on the merits, that's true in the sense that we can't relate to people who might go and do this. It's very hard to understand why someone would do this. And yet the process that they're undertaking to to plan and prepare and then commit an attack is in some ways very rational. Can you give us a brief overview of just what behavioral threat assessment is? Sure. What behavioral threat assessment is, is a community-based method for violence prevention. Uh, It brings together experts in mental health, law enforcement, education, workplace management, Uh, in some cases, religious leaders, other community leaders who come together essentially as a team to collaborate on specific cases of concern that are brought to a team's attention. In other words, a person in a community, in a school, in a workplace, or in a local community is, is raising concern, is acting in ways that are disturbing to people around them, creating fear, anxiety. And when that's brought to the attention of a team, they evaluate the situation by gathering as much information as they can in short order by interviewing people around that person, often talking directly to the person themselves, and then using that information to gauge the level of danger and then develop a plan for intervening, for managing that person's situation, for trying to help the person essentially. Are there examples of a person's actions, like when they may cross that line that might get the attention of a threat assessment team? I think the most commonly understood version of that is what what can be called threatening communications. So many mass shooters or would-be mass shooters find ways to communicate their intentions. We see a lot of this, of course, now on social media, where people are, are expressing their intention to commit violence, whether directly or in a more veiled manner. Historically, with 
mass shootings and, and threat cases. This also happens through comments that a person will make to others around them. Um, it appears in writings. We see a lot of that in school shooting cases. So that's probably the most obvious way that a threat case will come to the attention of a team. But there are often other factors as well. When a person begins to deteriorate personally, um, changes of routine that raise alarm in people around them. So to use a, a school example, you might have a student who's dropping out of class, who is quitting social activity, losing social connection, causing fear and anxiety in peers that's being reported to a teacher or a counselor or a principal. All of these can be signs that, that somebody is headed down a, a darker path like this. One of the other things that you wrote about you know, when we talk about the myths around mass shooters is that mass shooters can be profiled. And I find it interesting because if you go back to some of the earliest work in, you know, threat assessment overall with the FBI, the so-called mind hunters from the, the 70s and the 80s, it was all about developing a profile that might help stop serial killers. But that profiling doesn't work when it comes to mass shooters. Why is that? There's a really interesting uh, evolution of that work, particularly in the context of the FBI's behavioral science that I write about in the book. So as you say, historically, there's this uh, famed team of FBI experts who develop a way to profile serial killers, which is a retrospective form of pro profiling, where they're taking evidence from crime scenes and trying to develop an idea of, of who the person is to, to figure out what their identity is through character type, and then track that person down. Threat assessment for in the context of prevention and the way it's been applied to targeted violence like mass shootings, in some ways is the opposite of that because threat assessment research isn't trying to profile an unknown suspect. These are people who have already either died in the attack or are apprehended and, and are in jail. You know, when we're talking about this difference between, you know, profiling, say, of serial killers versus mass shooters, there's a quote from the book that really stood out for me. Determining why people commit mass shooting doesn't necessarily matter as much as knowing how they reached the point of attacking. Do you think that's one of the big differences between the two fields? Right. So the real distinction between the uh, original work of profiling at the FBI's behavioral analysis unit and what it later became in terms of prevention work was this distinction of not trying to analyze specific types of people who would commit a crime and use that for prediction, but rather to profile the behavioral process itself. Because as I was saying earlier, what threat assessment research learned early on, beginning four decades ago, was that a, there is no predictive profile of, of an assassin or a mass shooter, that people from all different kinds of backgrounds and demographics commit this type of atrocity. And then also that there is a recognizable behavioral process leading up to these planned attacks, sets of behaviors and circumstances that reveal patterns. So the profiling work became about profiling that process itself, rather than trying to find particular types of people who would commit a mass shooting, um, which does not exist. How does behavioral threat assessment work when some of the things that a person might be doing that are warning signs also aren't necessarily illegal? So when I talk to leaders in the field about this, they've said consistently that that's really where the, the heart of the work is with with behavioral threat assessment because 
you're not talking about trying to criminalize a person in these circumstances because they haven't committed a crime in most cases. In, in many cases, they haven't even broken a policy, um, whether in school or a workplace or otherwise. And so that really points to the, the true heart of the work, which is about prevention, about constructive prevention, about trying to help steer people away from a path that could lead them to become criminalized. Uh, so it's, it's a very interesting, and I think in some ways delicate process because it requires uh, investigation that takes into account that people haven't done anything wrong. And you have to do, do this with respect to civil liberties and privacy. Um, and yet at the same time, many of these cases that I was able to look at in the process of, of researching the book, you see people who are acting in ways that are setting up for some very scary situations. People who clearly have strong ideas about violence, who want to commit violence, who are planning for it, taking steps to prepare for it. And so there's a very strong sense when you study that case evidence that these are people who, but if there had not been an intervention of this kind and, and management work of this kind, almost certainly would have gone on to commit a violent attack. It was surprising to read that the focus of a lot of these threat assessment teams isn't about a punitive action. So we think, you know, somebody's making me nervous at work or, you know, somebody's bullying at school, you fire them or you kick them out of school. But these teams take a completely different approach. Can you talk about that and maybe share an example of a specific case that, that stood out for you? Sure. Uh, early on in the development of this field, uh, the, the researchers and practitioners, I think, realized pretty quickly through studying cases and handling cases that punitive steps uh, alone were, were not enough, that often what you would see is people would come back. In other words, you're not solving the problem by firing someone from their job and kicking them out the door or expelling someone from school. Um, another version of this that there's a long history of is, is the use of restraining orders um, for, for um, attackers who have backgrounds involving domestic abuse or harassment and stalking. Uh, those kinds of steps may well be necessary, but if that's the only step taken, history of these cases shows that these people will remain dangerous and often come back or go elsewhere and commit violence. So the experts in this field were learning over time that taking more constructive approaches were often more effective. So for example, in a workplace scenario, you know, there've been many mass shootings where you have a disgruntled or aggrieved employee be fired from their job, and then they'll come back and commit an attack. Threat assessment experts at the FBI, going back to the 1990s, they learned that engineering what they call a soft landing for a person in that situation could be really helpful um, to essentially usher someone out of their job with a sense of dignity and even help if they need it. I think probably the most vivid stories like this that I write about in Trigger Points were in a school setting. There's uh, several cases in Salem, Oregon. There's a school district there that was one of the first to adopt this model after Columbine in 1999. And I spent significant time with them uh, in 2019, observing them, them working cases and looking at their case files and talking to them about it. One case in particular that really stood out to me was a, a high school junior named Brandon. He said to uh, another peer one day at a bus stop, don't come to school on Friday. I'm going to come back here with my dad's gun and shoot up the place. 
And another student overheard this and reported it. And so the team quickly gathered other information about Brandon. Um, he had actually been on their radar previously for some other comments about school shootings that had raised some eyebrows. And this was now increasing the sense of alarm because now Brandon was getting more specific, whereas in the past, he'd sort of made off the cuff remarks to peers about school shootings. Now he was getting more specific. Now he was saying when he was gonna commit the attack and how. The team also looked at a bunch of other information about him, learned that he was dropping out of class, had quit a drama club that he'd really liked before, um, seemed to be deteriorating personally in, in a number of ways. So what the team did was quickly tried to understand what the level of danger was, namely, does he have access to the gun that he's threatening to bring? They sent a team member, a school resource officer out to his home the night that they learned of that threat. The officer was able to determine by interviewing Brandon and his mom that he did not in fact have access to a gun. But then the question became, what is the team going to do to manage him? Uh, there was uh, one team member, a counselor, who, who was very concerned that Brandon was becoming suicidal based on some comments he'd made that reflected very low self-esteem. Uh, so again, we're not talking about a punitive step here. Here's a kid who threatened to bring a gun to school and commit a shooting, but they're not expelling him or trying to arrest him. They're trying to help him because they see a kid in deep crisis. So they use what they call the wraparound strategy, quickly extending him counseling support, individual educational plans. Uh, they work with the mother in this case who was receptive to help. That's not always the case. In this case, fortunately, she was willing to, to help them monitor his behavior to make sure that he wasn't trying to access firearms online or elsewhere. And over time, by connecting him more with teachers that he liked, by giving him the help that he needed, by watching him closely, the team was able to steer Brandon away from this pathway of planning and thinking about violence. And he did well over, over the next few months and uh, went on to uh, succeed in his senior year and finish high school. It wasn't a straight shot to that. There, there were ups and downs and other moments of concern for the team. But the overall process was successful in moving Brandon away from violent ideation and planning. So what happens when these students are out of school, that's that's a pretty controlled environment versus when you're just out in the world. This is another area of major challenge, I think, for the work of threat assessment. And there is, in fact, a case in Salem that I write about historically that reflects this problem in rather extraordinary terms. They can do a lot to manage a troubled student like Brandon. But what happens when he leaves? So in Salem, there is actually another innovative quality to what this work is in that the, the community there also has what they call an adult threat advisory team that's based in the local police department. These two teams actually work together, the school threat assessment team and the local community adult team. So in this case, there was the possibility to hand off a case. If someone's leaving the school but they're still concerned that, that this person has now as a young adult in the world uh, may still be at risk, that now other people can kind of take the lead in, in monitoring him outside the school system. But you can see how this would present major challenges for uh, the work of threat assessment more broadly. What happens if that person leaves the community? So there was a case like that in Salem uh, when the program first started in the early 2000s. Uh, there was another high school kid then, a junior, who. Uh, was suicidal, was threatening to commit a school shooting, who the team 
moved quickly to help and was successful in helping over a year and a half period. And then even beyond that, as he lived in the local community and began to uh, work a job and was doing pretty well. But then he moved away to Portland and several years later had lost complete touch with the people who were helping him in Salem. And this individual, in fact, went on to commit a suicidal mass shooting in Portland years later. It's a very unique case in the field, and it shows, I think, both the great promise of the work, but also its limitations. There, there was an investigation into 37 school shootings, and I, I was just riveted by this section of the book when they found that in almost all of these cases, the shooter had communicated their plans to someone. Sometimes they just flat out told someone else what they were going to do. I think there was a, a shooting in Alaska where so many students knew that something was going to happen that a group of them had gathered to watch it happen. W were you surprised by that at all? I did find it really quite astonishing. You know, once you've studied the research of behavioral threat assessment and, and of mass shooters, it makes sense. But the degree to which that behavior manifests in, in the setting of school shootings is really quite remarkable. I think it was astonishing to the researchers who initially discovered it, going back to the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, there was a team of forensic psychologists and and secret service agents who worked on this um, initially to try to prevent assassination. This, this was later applied to studying workplace mass shootings and then school shootings. And so when they applied it to school shootings after Columbine, they were finding that in spades. And I found it myself in further research looking at uh, the so-called copycat effect, in particular, uh, the way that the Columbine attack has become such a influential factor culturally in school shootings, in, in motivating copycats um, in a school setting. But even prior to that, the case that you mentioned from 1997, it's really quite remarkable that there have been situations like that so many times where a perpetrator told peers what they intended to do. That word then spread. I mean, this case in Alaska in 1997, so many kids knew by the morning of the attack that they had gathered in the mezzanine of, of the school, um, a second story mezzanine outside the library to watch what was going to happen. Now, a number of those students may not have known specifically or explicitly that there was gonna be a shooting, but there was a very strong indication among many peers that something of that nature was about to happen. And not a single one reported that to an authority. This raises really interesting questions about community awareness of warning signs, among peers, among teachers, among families. The fact that there are warning signs of this nature and that they're not heeded on the one hand could seem really bleak, but on the other hand, it's also very promising because it reiterates that there are ways that these attacks can be detected and stopped before it's too late. Here in the greater Binghamton region, the shooter who killed 10 people in Buffalo is from this area. And a lot of people are just like, what did we miss? And then there's a story out today about all of the warning signs that were missed with the shooter in Uvalde, Texas. So why are these so recognizable after the fact and not before? It's a really good question. And what I found in, in researching and reporting for the book is that leaders in the field of threat assessment will be the first to say, even with their expertise, that warning signs of this nature are much easier to see in hindsight. You can look back over a case and it looks like alarm bells were going off everywhere. Of course, it's not that simple to see while it's happening, and particularly to people 
close to a perpetrator and they are the most likely people to, to notice something's wrong. Um, so there's an interesting paradox there, especially with families and parents in particular. There's a long history of cases where there is parental denial that is very powerful in terms of a child. I mean, imagine trying to see your own, being asked to see or trying to see your own child as someone who's turning dangerous in this way. Um, there's a very high bar to that, I think. And it's there also with peers, as we were just discussing, and that's for some different reasons as well. So it's not easy to see these warning signs per se. At the same time, people have instincts that create fear, anxiety in them. And you can look back on this process and say, or ask the question, why is it that people aren't responding to those instincts about someone? The case with the shooter from Conklin who attacked in Buffalo uh, is a good example of this, perhaps even to the more explicit end of the continuum, because as we know, he made a comment toward the end of his senior year in high school about committing a, a suicidal shooting and was taken into custody and given a mental health evaluation. So what that tells you is that there were people around him who were very worried about his behavior, that they were taking it seriously. I think that is a good example of what's possible with so many of these cases. And in a fundamental sense, they are all the same in this fundamental sense, that this pattern of warning signs of behaviors and circumstances in varying combinations are always present in these mass shootings. So the opportunity of threat assessment really lies with that, that if that can be seen and understood more widely among communities, among the general public, and among practitioners in mental health and law enforcement, leaders in education and so on, we have a better chance of stopping more of these from happening. You write a lot about the rise of digital media and the intersection that plays almost with the radicalization, and it seems in some cases, of these mass shooters. How does that tie into what threat assessment teams are looking at? So this was uh, particularly fascinating territory to explore more deeply with the book um, to try to understand how digital media has really impacted the mass shootings phenomenon. And it has significantly. I had known this from my previous reporting at Mother Jones, but when I dove deeper, um, I was just finding more and more of it in, in the study of cases and in talking to leaders at the FBI and elsewhere who study this problem that a lot of the behavioral patterns that have always been a part of this problem have really been magnified by the speed and proliferation of digital media. Uh, the fact that anybody, the fact that any person can go online and kind of get swallowed quickly into a, a dark hole of ideological extremism, of grievance, of, of rage, of despair, take your pick. Uh, that it can feed this process that's already going on in a person. Um, it's, a, it's a real point of concern for threat assessment experts. And again, you can see it in the case of the perpetrator from Conklin who attacked in Buffalo, a young person especially who becomes radicalized online. Um, we're seeing more of this in recent years. And we also see it in the tactics and, and in the uh, quest for notoriety among many mass shooters and uh, their seeking of sensationalism, the so-called copycat problem, uh, the use of tactical gear, uh, the, the attraction to uh, far-right extremism, racist ideology. 
These are all behaviors that have become more accessible through digital media and have exerted more and more impact on mass shooters. So this also raises important questions about what the news media does to report on these cases, because there's significant evidence and a growing body of evidence that by giving a spotlight to this, by sensationalizing mass shootings and putting a lot of attention on the perpetrators, that this is now incentivizing others to do the same things. It's interesting. I was just thinking that we've been talking about many different shootings and we've never mentioned a shooter's name. And I've seen that starting to change so much in the last few years in how reporting goes on. Columbine happened live on TV. We all saw Columbine and we saw footage of that over and over and over in years later. But it, it does seem to be changing. And do you think that that will have some sort of an effect? I do think there is value in it. And it is a measure of progress. It's like with anything else with this problem of mass shootings, it's complicated. Um, there's, a, there's been a lot of debate about identifying shooters and focusing on them or, or not, or trying to black out their identities. I really came to see it as a balancing act, a challenging one, but one that is very important. Um, if you think back just a handful of years ago, there was just reams of sensational attention on every mass shooter. Um, I think back to where I began this project a decade ago, the movie theater massacre, that perpetrator's face and name was everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, we had events in that era where we had attacks where uh, footage was being looped on cable television. Um, the perpetrators would have their, their pictures plastered on the front pages of newspapers and websites. We don't see much of that anymore and that's a good thing. But at the same time, we still need to understand this problem and report on it. The media has um, an important duty to bring clarity to these events. They're incredibly traumatic with profound impact, uh, obviously in the communities where they happen, but also nationally in the way that they drive conversation and policymaking and politics around guns and gun violence. Um, there are issues with disinformation that we're seeing now that are uh, metastasizing. So often you'll see when there's a mass shooting breaking in the news, uh, there's very quickly disinformation spread on social media about who the perpetrator is. Uh, people try to exploit that situation to uh, create different kinds of effects politically or otherwise. And that's a problem. And people's lives have been impacted by this too. So it's very strongly in the public interest for the news media to report on the perpetrators of mass shootings, but it has to be done with balance. Um, I think we can do it uh, forensically and dispassionately um, with, with the right kind of proportion so that the public is informed. Um, but we also don't see you know, the spreading of so-called manifestos much anymore, uh, certainly not live streaming footage that has become another um, aspect of, of this phenomenon that's very troubling where shooters try to record or live stream their attacks as they're happening and then spread that all over the internet. Um, these things can have very damaging effects. And I think that the media understands that much better now than even just a few years ago. Mark, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. It's really good to talk with you. Mark Fulman is the National Affairs Editor at Mother Jones. His book is Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. 
We talked about a lot more during our interview, and you can listen to the extended conversation on our podcast. Visit yourpublicradio.org and click on Off the Page to listen, or you can find us through most podcast apps. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll stay up to date whenever a new episode is released. Off the Page is made possible in part by you. Your donations help ensure that WSKG Public Media is able to produce local content that we share not only with our own audience, but with audiences around the world. If you've made a donation in support of the program, thank you so much. If you'd like to send a few dollars our way, it's very easy to do. Just go to wskg.org and click on Donate. Coming up next week, my guest is poet Jillian Barnett. Her new collection of work is Falling Bodies, and it's a wonderful collection of poems that explore family, loss, grief, love, and more. I hope you'll join me for it. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page.